That'll be Matthew 26, 17 through 29. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you, will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say, uh, say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered them, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, uh, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the uh, forgiveness of sins. I, w- I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. A warm welcome to any of you who may be new joining us for the first time. And uh, children, it's great to it's great to have you with us. Uh, if you are new, uh, once a month we have our children join us for service. Uh, in part, it gives our hardworking kids volunteers a break and a chance for them to be in here. But also, um, I mean, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is repeatedly trying to show his disciples that children aren't just don't just like happen to be here in in the church, right? But they are an active part of the church family. And so kids, we're, we're glad to have you with us. And honestly, you all are the best assessment on if my sermons are clear or not, not your parents. And so you all can, can help me uh, become a better preacher over time. So just love having you guys with us. Uh, so we are uh, heading up to Good Friday and Easter during this Lenten season. And uh, we're looking at the final week of Jesus' life in Matthew's gospel. And today we get to uh, this this meal Jesus has. It's his final meal with his closest friends, which would then go on to become the first meal among many that the church would celebrate throughout the ages called the Lord's Supper that we celebrate here every week. And note what Jesus says here as he's giving the supper in verse 28. He says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So these are his final hours with his closest friends. He knows he's going to die, and so he's only going to say what's most on his heart. And what he's communicating here is forgiveness of sin is central to to who I am and to what I'm about. And unfortunately, but understandably, the word sin has become kind of a dirty word in our culture, in part because sometimes religious people have wielded that word in a not great way. Uh, a little while ago, I was talking with a good friend of mine. We were talking about faith. He's, he's not a Christian. And he, he made this comment. He said, well, yeah, you know, as, as a Christian, you, th- you think I'm a sinner, right? And, you know, there's all kinds of assumptions that were embedded in that statement. But partly what he was saying is, you know, like what he's getting at is sin is often used to otherize people, right? Like you're a sinner and I'm not. Or at best, sin is a category Christians keep. Just kind of a like a guilt-laden and bleak outlook on life and humanity in general. 
But to, you know, whether you like the word or not, to gloss over it as a category is to gloss over what Jesus is about, uh, because he's, he's constantly talking about it. And he doesn't bring up sin here to, to condemn. He brings up the category of sin, just like a doctor, like a good doctor will say, hey, there, there is something wrong with you. Here's the diagnosis, but have no fear. I'm a good doctor, and I'm here to heal you. So when Jesus brings up sin, yes, he wants us to know what it is, um, but also, even more importantly, he wants us to see the goodness and the power of God. And that's what we'll see in this passage. And so, uh, just as we jump in here, just like a, a quick definition of sin uh, that I think is most helpful is you could summarize the Bible's teaching of sin as just simply the, it's the refusal to love. Like, that's one way to sum up the Bible's teachings. So it can just help us have a, a grasp on, on what we're talking here, and you can see why God cares about it so much. Okay, sin is just any kind of refusal to love God, another person, or yourself. So we'll look at this passage under two headings. Uh, we'll see the nature of sin. We see that in Judas, who betrays Jesus. And then number two, we'll look at the nature of God, who we see in Jesus and through the supper. So sin's nature, and then even better, God's nature. Okay, so first number one, the the nature of sin. So note that Jesus here, he doesn't give a Merriam-Webster definition of sin. Instead, he paints a picture. And he says in verse 21, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So suddenly this dinner has just gotten a lot more awkward. And then in verse 23, he quotes Psalm 41 when he says, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the psalm that he's quoting has themes of relational betrayal in it. And when Jesus says, he who's dipped his hand in this dish with me will betray me, what he's saying is, like, you just try to put yourself in this scene. He's saying, Judas, like, we've been best friends for three years. We've been intimate with one another. We lived with one another Okay, we were there for one another when we, we each got bad news. If they had children, they would have said, we watched one another's children. Okay, I, I brought you into my life. I resourced you, and now you're stabbing me in the heart. And so what we see here is sin is, it's inherently relational, always. Sin is always inherently relational. And this matters because I think when we often conceptualize sin, we think of it mainly in terms of just a behavior or breaking an ethical rule. And when we do that, it depersonalizes the nature of sin. So it's like, oh yeah, I, whoops, I sped too fast, and now God, the big mean policeman in the sky, is upset at me. And so it helps, uh, you know, it keeps some distance between us, just the relational aspect of it. But it's always relational. This is one reason why, I mean, so many examples of it in Scripture, but in the Ten Commandments, when God gives the law, he doesn't just start the commandments with rattling off a bunch of laws. He starts the commandments with, I have freed you from slavery in Egypt, and I love you. So in other words, like, I love you, I fought for you, I joined myself for you. And so now, all the ethics that follow, right, help us stay in a joyous whole relationship. And so sin is relational. A little while ago, a, a dear friend of mine called me just numb. He wasn't even crying because he was so far beyond that point. He was so numb with pain. And what had happened was uh, he and his wife's 20-something-year-old child, they moved out of the house, and they stole over $20,000 from their parents and then they had connections with law enforcement and police and lawyers, and they used those connections to 
stonewall any attempt of their parents to even just get their money back. So they're just, just asking, like, basically just, can I cry on your shoulder, essentially, for a little while? Just because I don't even know what to do. And notice there, what was the source of the pain? It wasn't, oh, my child broke these ethical rules, don't steal, okay, don't obstruct justice, right, don't lie, even though they did all these things. The pain was the betrayal, right? And so it filled their, their parents' hearts with pain. And I mean, you hear a story like that, you can't help but think like there's just something grossly wrong and unjust about that because these parents, they, yes, they'd be the first to say, yes, there are many things we could have done better, but I know them. In general, they're good parents. They love this person into adulthood. And then this person just turned around to the people they owe everything to and stabbed them through the heart. And so when, when we sin, it's as if God is saying, like, I fed you, I clothed you, I gave myself, I gave all of myself for you, and you're just like, meh, whatever. I don't even care. And so sin is relational, and this may sound counterintuitive, but understanding this aspect of sin, it actually helps us want to obey. How so? Well, two ways. One, it helps us obey because notice, to betray somebody that presupposes a relationship of love and trust. Okay, if a stranger lets you down, you don't think of it in terms of betrayal, right? Because you don't have that relationship of love and trust. But if a dear friend does, if a spouse does, if a parent does, it's betrayal because you all love one another. And so for God to even use language of betrayal, it's not because he doesn't love you. It's for the very fact that he does. So you're already in this love relationship with God. That's why it fills him with pain. But Second, why, why I think it helps us, why it helps us want to obey is when we think of God's law, right, and whether it's just things we do in private or things we do with other people, is when we think of it just through, like, legal terms, it just, for better or worse, it's, it's hard to stay motivated. It's just like, okay, I just have to obey this cosmic lawgiver in the sky, even though God is our lawgiver. But think about it this way. So I remember for me, I think the few times in my life where my change for the better accelerated the most was when there was something I said or a pattern in my life that caused a searing look of pain in my wife Kelsey's face or in a dear friend, a dear friend of mine's face. And when I saw their pain as a result of what I had done or what I was doing, right, suddenly now it's not like oh, the ethics aren't disconnected from this relationship. When I saw the pain it was causing the person I loved, you know, that, that was like, oh man, Steve, you, you really need to take this seriously and change. And so when you, when you grasp that God is actually filled with pain, Jesus, I mean, Jesus here, he's, he's torn to pieces is, is the language of this passage. It, it helps you want to obey in order to not fill his heart with pain because he, he loves you. And so first, sin is, is relational. It always is, okay, to God, to other people, into ourselves. But number two, also what do we see about sin's nature is sin is so powerful. It is so powerful. And we see this here with Judas because, like, think about Judas. It's, when it comes to external circumstances, it's hard to have it better than Judas, at least for these three years. Jesus was his best friend, right? So he has the best friend, the best mentor, Anytime he catches the flu or gets sick, it's like, oh, hey, Jesus, can you use that, uh, you know, that healing stuff you've got to make me better? And Jesus, he, Judas is, he's sleeping and 
eating right next to God. And so he, Judas has nuclear blasts of love and care and mercy and counseling rippling over his whole body day after day after day. And at the end of it, he's still like, nah, I don't really care. You know, Judas, I'm, I'm still going to turn you over. And so if Judas can fall prey to sin, right, this curving in on ourselves where the only non-negotiable becomes my preferences and my desires, okay, over anybody else. If Judas can fall prey to the power of sin, so can you and me, and we do. And a couple applications here when we think about just how powerful sin is. First is knowing sin is this powerful, it should make us clear-headed about other people. And when I say this, what I mean is the Bible's teaching isn't because of sin, every human is as bad as they could possibly be. The the teaching of scripture is, we start with Genesis 1. God made humans, he made you very good. Okay, so humans are very good, capable of so much beauty. And Genesis 3, we're enslaved to sin. We're going to keep going back to our refusal to love other people and God over ourselves. And because we're very good, but enslaved to sin— what this means is when I say being clear-headed about other people, it should just, it should make you not cynical toward other people, but just have a, a clear, sober understanding that everybody you're in relationship with is going to fall prey to sin in some way, shape, or form. And like to put things on the ground, I mean, one reason why a husband and wife can get so bitter and resentful toward one another over time, a reason why you may be so bitter or resentful toward another person, a parent, right, a friend, a child, an old boss, a coworker, is because we forget this fact of human nature. And so we, when we're in relationship with somebody, we construct this fantasy of them where we expect them to be Jesus Christ. And then it's like we're surprised or shocked when, oh my goodness, they're actually refusing to love me or they're refusing to put other people first. And here, okay, we're, we're not talking about, okay, in cases of extreme abuse, yes, there, there's times where we need to distance ourselves, but just like in the ordinary life of where we wrong one another, if we weren't so surprised by this this fact of other people, it would free us to love because we're no longer putting these undue expectations on somebody else where you need to be Jesus, and unless you're not going to be Jesus without sin, then I can actually love you or forgive you. Okay, so it helps us be clear, clear-eyed toward other people, but also this understanding, I think even bef- before we think about other people, it should make us so humble and open to correction, right? Because, like, as Christians, we should be the quickest to when somebody points out something in us, a flaw in us, or they correct us, even if we don't think they're 100% right, we should be the quickest to admit some kind of wrongdoing, right, in the relationship, which is actually a key to any healthy relationship. You need to be quick to own, own up, okay, not just deflect or deny, because when somebody says something, even if you're not sure if their motives are fully there, you, sh- you should say something to the effect of, if sin is this powerful and it took over Judas, then I can bet it's in me. And so, thank you. Like, thank you for caring enough to point out something in me so that I don't spiral and fall into the same fate that Judas did. Okay, so this should make us so, so quick. <laughs> so quick. To say, Yes. You're right, I'm, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me and walk with me because I need help in this area? Okay, so that, that's, 
that's, that's the first, those are the first two things we see about sin, right? It's, so it's relational and it's powerful. Okay, just a couple of things on the nature of sin. Now, let's look at God's nature. And here we see this in uh, Jesus and his institution of the Lord's Supper. So you can see here Jesus and his, his disciples, they travel to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they, they are 13. Well, there's probably more of them as well. Okay, but, but they're, they're 13 among hundreds of thousands of Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem every single year to celebrate the Passover, which was an a- annual feast, right? Remembering the Exodus, which was when God liberated the Israelites from, from slavery in, in the book of Exodus. And what would happen at the Passover meal, so this is Thursday night, which begins the day in Jewish thought. So it's the beginning of the Passover day on Thursday night. And at the Passover, you have a presider, a master of ceremonies, as you, as you were at, at the table. And traditionally, what would happen is the presider would point to the past. And they would point out the elements on the table, the lamb and so forth. And they would say, remember the meal that our ancestors, our fathers and mothers, ate on the night before they were liberated from slavery in Egypt when God brought them out. But Jesus here, he does something astonishing. And instead of pointing to the past, he points to the present. And he reinterprets the symbols on the table to uh, symbolize himself. And so when he says, this is my body, pointing to the bread, and then pointing to the wine, this is the blood of the covenant, this is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, what he's saying is, ultimately, what these things represent aren't what our ancestors ate, but they point to me. Because just like the Israelites, they ate this meal on the eve of their liberation. Now it's the eve of when Jesus is going to die. And so he's saying where originally God's people were liberated from a political oppression through, through my body and my blood, my death on the cross, I'm going to liberate you not from political oppression, but actually something far worse, spiritual oppression, okay, slavery to sin and slavery to death. And so it's not like the disciples here are comprehending everything he's saying. They're, they're still relatively confused, but at minimum, they can tell that he's saying that there's, in some way, my death is going to guarantee this kingdom of God that I've been talking about since Matthew chapter 4, where I'm going to make the earth new and there won't be any more tears and you will have a new heart where you'll be able to love and be loved. And notice Jesus' brilliance when he, the, with the symbols that he chooses uh, to, to symbolize what he's talking about because the, with the bread and the wine, because the bread and the wine, they, first they get at the, the realness of Jesus. Okay, so he's, he's saying, I'm not some kind of Superman, aloof in the sky, right, removed from your problems. I'm not a mythical God that still created to steer Judaism in a different direction. But I'm God, voluntarily become as, as real and touchable as your own skin or the person next to you. I have blood in my veins and breath in my lungs. So he uses it to point out the realness of himself, but also he's pointing out the lengths to which God goes to heal you. When he says, this is my body which will be broken for you, my blood will will be poured out to you, what he's saying is, through my death, I'm showing you that if you consider yourself the weakest Christian, if you consider yourself the person who has the weakest faith, if you think you're someone who is unworthy of receiving real love by another person if they were to actually know you, I'm willing to lay down my life for you, and I will, to make you whole. And so what we see here is Jesus is trying with every fiber in his being. He's been doing it since the beginning. But here at the supper, he's saying, at the heart of God's nature is God spares no expense to bring you into a whole relationship with himself and other people. 
And that's God's nature. And so now let's look at how Jesus shows this to Judas in specific, and then we'll look at uh, how it applies to us um, specifically as well. Okay, so the, the more I read and reflected on this passage, this is just, this is amazing. So, like, try to put yourself in the scene again. So, imagine you are at a table, and the person across from you, this is somebody you've trusted, and they trust you. This is somebody you've bared yourself to. This is somebody you've, you've given yourself to. And then you find out they've, they've betrayed you in the worst of ways. And sadly, I know for some of you, this, this isn't a thought experiment. You're, you're looking at them, but they don't yet know that you know. You know what they're doing, but they don't yet know. And I would love to stand up here and say, you know, I'm a pastor. I've been to seminary. I preach about God. Like, I would really handle this situation if this was me with just gentleness and compassion. I don't think I would. But yet, look at how Jesus deals with Judas here. And, and Jesus is the only truly innocent victim. Right, so first, when he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, this, this is so deaf from start to finish. So first, it's his way of him telling Judas, I know, I know it's you, Judas. But he's keeping him anonymous so that the rest of the disciples don't become outraged and jump on him, basically. So he's letting him know he knows while preserving his anonymity. And then in verse 25, when Judas says, when Judas asks, is it I, Rabbi? Also notice Judas is using the term rabbi or teacher, which is always what the crowds or those who are kind of on the skirts, the outside of Jesus call him. He says, is it I, rabbi? Is it I, teacher? And Jesus says to him, you have said so, or those are your words. And th- th- see, because Judas asked him explicitly, is it me? And if Judas, sa- if Jesus says yes, then again, there's going to be the fury of all the other disciples. But if Jesus says no, it's untrue. And so Jesus answers in a way that he, he's telling Judas again, I know, but he's, when he says these are your words, he's saying, Judas, you still have a choice. You still have a choice. You, you don't have to go through with this, and I'm here to forgive you. And then number three, and I think this is the most powerful, when he takes the bread and breaks it and he gives it to his disciples, Judas is still there. And when he's giving the bread to each of his disciples, this is a, especially in this culture, it is a profound gesture of honor, of friendship, of an offer into intimacy. And so when he, when he hands the bread to Judas, he's saying, Judas, I see all of you. I know what you're doing. And I love you. And I'm even going to lay down my life for you to give you the opportunity to enter into my grace if you'll have it. As one author put it, it's as if over the past weeks or months, Judas's heart has been slowly freezing over. And this is for Judas, it's the last hot breath, breath of love into a rapidly freezing heart. And Judas says no. But Jesus gives the same offer you and me, and we can say yes. 
And so as we see this profound act of love uh, from Jesus to Judas, let's think about how does this and what the Lord's Supper symbolizes, um, what are some ways that it applies to our lives? Um, the first is, and this isn't on the screen, it's just something that even just as I'm talking here, I felt like I should say, if this is you and you've been exploring the faith for a long time, Judas reached a point where he, his, his timeline did run out. And Jesus kept giving him an opportunity, kept giving opportunity, and Judas said no. And just so for you, yes, like we, we try so much here to emphasize that life with Jesus is a journey. There's so much room to explore and to take your time. At the same time, you don't know when the, run, when the runway is going to run out. And I'm not just talking about if you were to suddenly die tomorrow, but there does seem to be a point where the heart just becomes too hard, where it's just not going to receive Jesus anymore. And so the invitation of Jesus would be, come to me today. Okay, and so, one, but those of us, once we've received Jesus' invitation, first, here are some things for different types of people in here. Maybe this list will hit each of you in some way, shape, or form. First, for, to those who have been burned, okay, you trusted somebody, and they burned you. They, they let you down in some way. Okay, they, they failed you in some way. And maybe you made a conscious decision. Maybe it just happened over time. But you've said to yourself, maybe not even consciously, but essentially you're like, never again. I'm not going to let myself be hurt again. In other words, what you're saying is I'm not going to allow myself to love and be loved again. And while being hurt is real, and when you're hurt by another person, I mean, there is a shift in our neurobiology that, that happens where our attachment patterns actually change. And so it can take a long time to relearn trust. But a sign that you're letting Jesus love you is you're beginning to take steps to open up and to love other people. Because see Jesus here, no one's been burned worse than Jesus. He's burned here and he's burned by other people. And Jesus doesn't say, you know what? That's it. I'm done. I'm done with humanity. Father, spirit, take me back. He continues to love. Because that's who he is. And so the invitation of Jesus is just to begin to take steps. You might be a person, when you're around other people, you put forward a face of you're, you're happy or joyful, but like you're very skilled at not letting anyone actually in. And Jesus and community and means of grace like therapy can help you begin to open yourself up to love and be loved. So, so it's a message for those who've been burned and have, we've kind of like destroyed our humanity by walling ourselves off to other people. Uh, number two... For the conflict avoidant, uh, for the conflict avoidant, Jesus could have easily said here at the table, you know what, this is going to create a really awkward dinner if I bring up to everybody on our final meal that one of the insiders has betrayed me. But he embraces the awkward because he loves Judas. And so if you're the kind of person, either through temperament or it's just because of the type of family environment that you grew up in, when somebody wrongs you, maybe it's big, maybe it's especially with the small stuff. You're just like, eh, I'm just going to sweep that under the rug because, at least I think in a lot of modern times, it would just be way too uncomfortable to, to actually address this. And we see Jesus is always somebody who's initiating reconciliation, even when he's not the one in the wrong, and he, even with the small stuff. So the encouragement would to you is if, if you're this kind of person, when somebody wrongs you, Okay, sweeping under the rug, it's not going to make the problem go away. It's just to, in love for the person and for Jesus, to be the initiator of reconciliation. Go to that person and, in love, say, hey, this happened. Can we talk about it? I mean, initiating reconciliation, it's at the heart of the gospel. It's what God does to us. It's what he calls us to do to other people. And sadly, I think this 
area in particular, and we'll see this later this year when we look at Matthew 18, just, I think it's an area in the church and among many Christian families we're just really weak at. And so can we be a church that initiates reconciliation and embraces the awkward? Number three, to the betrayed. There are some of you here who, there was somebody in your life, a parent, a spouse, a friend, and they either should have been there for you and they weren't. Or they were there, but in the worst of ways, actively harming you. And I, I don't have any fancy words for you other than just to ask you to see Jesus here. Jesus, he knows. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by somebody he thought he could trust, by somebody he should trust. And for me, the reason why on my most doubt-filled days, the reason why I continue to trust Jesus, because of all the gods, he's the only God who has scars. And so he's with you in your pain, and he will see you through. So if, if you've been hurt, Jesus knows, and he's with you. Number four, and finally, as we, as we look at the supper, this is what Jesus, he, he, he brings us to himself to do every single Sunday. So when uh, Kelsey and my children enter Angry Town, and they're having a, you know, temper tantrum, or they sin against someone, this only happens like once every two months in our house, because uh, we're such awesome parents. Um, when we keep our wits about ourselves, we, we stay calm, because I mean, one of the best things we learned was an, an escalated parent can never de-escalate an escalated child. Okay, so we, we stay calm and we work it through with them. And once the child is ready, we get on the ground and we wrap them into a hug and we just sit there with them. We just love them. And why we do this is because we're trying to communicate to them. It's not fundamentally about your behavior that we care about. It's because we want you. And so we're not just forgiving you, but we embrace you because we love you. And what the Lord's Supper does is it's a gift that Jesus gives you as you see his body and blood poured out for you. It's his way of saying, I'm not just here to forgive you, but I'm here to give you a full-on secure embrace and welcome you into the very heart of things. And I'm not going anywhere. And so this is what we get to celebrate at, at the table each week. So let's move into that now.